Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about unwanted connections between family and friends. I'm sure many of you are familiar with author Gemma Amore, who has shared a number of her tales with us on the podcast. Stories like Foliage and Girl on Fire. Well, Gemma has recently released a new horror novel titled Dear Laura. Every year on her birthday, Laura gets a letter from a stranger. That stranger claims to know the whereabouts of her missing friend Bobby, but there's a catch. He'll only tell her what he knows in exchange for something personal. This gripping novel will be perfect to read in the summer sun or in a dark bedroom. Check the show notes for a link to where you can order this captivating new book. And Gemma is one of the creative forces behind the podcast, Calling Darkness. You may recall I mentioned this audio drama podcast when it first launched. It's a devilish blend of horror and comedy, and features six women who attend an acting seminar at an old mansion, only to discover there are things more diabolical than being actors. The podcast recently wrapped up its first season, so if you haven't yet joined the girls, you can binge all ten episodes now. As always, a link is in the show notes, or search for Calling Darkness wherever you find your podcasts. And speaking of podcasts, it's time to start this one. So turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet two brothers who share a bond. This bond, unfortunately, revolves around a childhood trauma that happened to one of them before the other was even born. In this tale, shared with us by author Daniel Hale, we discover some truth to the old adage, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Performing this tale is David Alt. Easter may have been and gone, but for this one sibling duo, the scars of the holiday will leave them walking on eggshells. Hello, Nate. It's your brother. No, 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 no. Don't get up. (laughs) Sorry. That joke never started being funny, did it? You know me. Can't help myself. Are you awake? Tap once for... Ah, yeah, yeah, you are. It's hard to tell sometimes these days. You know, I don't remember the last time you opened your eyes. Am I that fucking ugly? (laughs) 
Uh, so, yeah. Mum and Dad couldn't be here. I, I told them not to come. Figured you'd prefer it that way. They both send their love. You know that. But it's, um... <clears throat> it's Easter today, Nate. Yeah, it's your special day. Remember how Mum used to say that? The day you were conceived. She was so proud of that. Damn weird and annoying, like we had to celebrate your birthday on both ends of the year. Never mattered what day Easter was actually on that year, and I can't remember honestly what day it was when they got you, but she'd still have to crow about it like it was a miracle. <laughs> you remember you remember Easter supper when we were kids? Oh, yeah, of course you do. You were always the centerpiece. Mum would wheel you out special for the occasion, give you pride of place at the head of the table where everyone could see you. Did you like that? I, I used to wonder. They, they'd keep you in your room the rest of the time. Hardly anybody ever went in there without Mum or Dad's say-so. They used to make me go and play in there just so you wouldn't be lonely. I would have preferred to have been on my own if it was me. We did an egg hunt at home for Alan and Olivia. Bad idea. More than a dozen chocolate eggs between two kids, and they still got into a fight about it. Might do the church's Easter service next year instead, if I can talk Alison into it. That's another thing Mum made us do, isn't it? Every Easter, she'd have me share my chocolate with you, and half the time you wouldn't even eat it. Just let it fall out of your mouth. Was it because you didn't like chocolate, Nate, or because you couldn't get it yourself? I wish you'd told us. Oh, I wish you could. Last time I got to do a proper egg hunt on my own was the Easter you were conceived. Have I ever told you that? I'll always remember it. It was the last time Mum and Dad took me to the church for Easter service. They never took us back after you were born. Old Reverend Philby used to call you the Easter boy. Philby the Bilby, eh? That's a face I haven't thought of in a long time. But you never went to church on Easter. I wonder if they still do the service the same way. Philby never conducted it himself. He always had a guest vicar to do it. The Reverend Osterhays. You never met him, more's the pity. I only ever saw him on Easter. He was this thin little guy with a pink bald head and big round glasses. He had ugly little buck teeth too, very, very prominent in a sort of high, breathy voice. He, he spoke quietly and wheezed a little when he gave the sermon. Oh, God, those Easter sermons. <laughs> I still remember them. Primitive cultures once believed that the world hatched from an egg. Each egg hatching is a life. Every rabbit spotted is a life to come. Every chocolate eaten is life's fleeting moments too little savoured. Oh, it's more like a lecture than a proper sermon. Well, he was strange, yeah, and you know, I don't think Father Philby liked him very much. He never hung around when he came for Easter. Wouldn't see him again till the next Sunday, and by then Oster Hayes would be gone. I've no idea what church he came from. We missed the sermon that last Easter, the one before Mum and Dad had you. They were arguing. Dad told me they'd overslept, but I could hear them through the wall. Couldn't hear what they said, but Mum was crying when she came out of the room. 
By the time we got to the church, the sermon was over and the other children were out on the lawn hunting for eggs. Oster Hayes was waiting in the church with the parents. The idea was the kids had an hour to find as many eggs as possible. They'd bring them back to their parents and they'd all paint them together. Then they'd give them to the reverend. Some of the other kids were already running eggs back to the church before heading out for more. Dad got a basket off the reverend for me, told me to go and find some eggs before they were all gone. Well, you know what the church is like, all those hedges. Big rolling lawn that butts up right to the edge of the woods. A lot of places to hide an egg, even without a bunch of kids who'd gotten a head start on you. <laughs> and they were vicious, those kids. I got tripped and pushed and shoved out of the bushes. I got the basket knocked out of my hands twice, and Wesley Hogan, yeah, that fat brat, even stepped on it at one point. Meanwhile, I'm seeing kids running back to the church with their baskets full of white and brown eggs, going as quick as they could without breaking any, and then running back out for more. You want to know the stupid thing, Nate? They were normal eggs, not chocolate or anything, and you didn't get anything for finding the most eggs or painting the prettiest eggs. You could bring a sackful of them back to Oster Hayes and there'd be no guarantee you'd win. He'd pick one egg and give it back to you with a big chocolate bunny for your trouble. I don't know how he picked which family won, even after all the Easters I'd been to by that point. It all looked pretty random to me. By the time the hour was almost over, I'd about given up. Mum and Dad hadn't seen me back in the church since we'd gotten there, so I was sure they'd given up too. But the thought of Mum just sat there by those bowls of unused dye, her eyes still red, and... And you know how Dad looks when he's disappointed? Or, or do you? I've never been sure. But I couldn't face that, not empty-handed. So... I did what little boys are best at. I picked a fight with the one nearest to me. And that just happened to be Benny Grenigan, who was biggest by far of our year and had the eggs in his basket to prove it. All I had to do was give him a shove and he turned around and started smacking me. He dropped his basket into the bargain, the eggs went rolling and the other kids got involved going after them. I'm surprised more of the eggs didn't get smashed, to be honest. As it was, the ground was covered in yellow fluff and broken shells when parents started pulling their kids off each other, and I got away with precisely one egg and just a little bit of yolk on my shirt. I was a little worried for a moment that Grenigan would tell until I saw his dad bringing him back inside, big red marks still on the right side of his face. <laughs> Serves him right. So I brought the egg to mum and dad. They didn't look as happy about it as I'd hoped, but mum still took it and dunked it in some dye. It came out quite pretty, too, all these blue and green swirls like the sun trying to set as the clouds come apart. And when it was dyed, she wrote on it with a white crayon, a name. When she was finished, I got into line with the other kids and their newly dyed eggs. At the head of the line was the Reverend Osterhays. The line was moving quickly as the reverend took each egg that was handed to him. The kids who finished walked past me to go and sit with their parents, crying or looking confused. Nobody had won yet. I hate being the last to do anything, but I hated being the last in that line most of all. 
The worst part was watching the girl in front of me handing over her eggs. There must have been nearly 20 stacked in her basket, and she handed each one to Osterhase. The reverend would bring each egg up to his face, turn it this way and that, running his fingers over the shell. And then he would let go. He smashed every one of that girl's eggs, and she ran back to her parents in tears. My feet crunched and squelched as I stepped on the remains of all the eggs rejected by the reverend. Every egg but mine. He took it from my basket before I could hand it to him, eager. He looked it over right up close so it was almost touching his face. I'm sure I could hear him sniffing it. He traced the name Mum had written on it with his fingers, then he touched the tip of each finger on his tongue, tasting them. He looked at me, he looked at Mum and Dad, then he very carefully set the egg back in my basket and nodded. The look on Mum's face might have been the happiest I've ever seen her. She and Dad both hugged me hard, neither really noticing that everyone else in church was silent. Except Osterhays. A new life, he said. Savor it. Of course, I had to go and drop the egg on the way back to the car. Mum wanted to keep it, preserve it, I guess, give it to you when you are older, but I swung the basket too hard and it hit the tarmac. Split apart. The thing inside... I, I guess it was a fetus? Uh, like a little malformed baby chicken. It looked wrong. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm not an expert or anything, but it looked wrong broken. It, it, its back was all crooked and sort of twisted out of shape. It, its head was too large. Its eyes sort of overinflated and bulging out of their sockets. It had no mouth that I could see, just a, a bare nub of skin, and its legs were sort of melted together into this kind of long, ropey tail. And it was moving. Soon as it hit the ground, it started trembling all over, thrashing its little tail, banging its head against the ground. After a moment or two, its eyes went cloudy, the flesh on its face stretched like it was trying to open its mouth, and then it... it lay still. I wanted to bury it, but Dad wouldn't let me, said Mum was upset enough as it was, so we just... left it there. When you were born, I didn't think. I mean, it, it, it was a good 20 years before I ever thought of that last Easter service. Mum and Dad never let me go again, never took you at all. I, I'm sure it occurred to them that something was wrong, but they always told me it was just because I started that fight. Osterhase, was that why? Because I stole the egg? Was that why he did this? to you I, I was just I well I didn't know oh god Nate I'm sorry I am so sorry I think I, I, th I think I have to mum and dad talked to me about it once I fought them about it got them to go off the idea but I don't think either of them could do it now I love you Nate will you let me Tap once for yes.
Being a cop can be tough, especially when you're the kind of cop who gets sent out to investigate mysterious blazes in the middle of nowhere. In this tale, shared with us by author L.P. Hernandez, we meet one such cop who's not only dealing with the strange events of the evening, but also struggling with his past. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Jessica McAvoy, Peter Lewis, and Graham Rowett. So tread carefully if you investigate the call, and join us as we discover the cause of the barn fire. The call came in at about 11 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Man says it's a barn fire about a quarter mile from his property. Says it'll probably burn itself out, but he's worried about the people there. Said he couldn't see them well from his porch and they were running around and making a lot of noise. Copy that, Jen. Is fire coming too? Negative. Fire's on a call across town. Engine 2 is in the shop. Let me know if you think otherwise when you get there. Copy. On my way. What's the address again? Nah, let's see. The man said we could use his address. Says you'll reach the barn before you reach his house. It's going to be 374 County Road 21. How copy? I typed the address in. It was only about four miles away as the crow flies, but the path was mostly back roads scaling rugged terrain. I had been in the area on call once before and recalled how quickly the town lights dissipated. A mile or two into the drive and the town was just a hazy, sherbet-colored glow out my passenger window. That's a good copy. Be about 15 mics. That's one five mics. Copy that. There was little radio chatter that night, despite the full moon. Tuesdays are typically slow, but full moon nights are unpredictable. Maybe it was the thin mountain air. Maybe being a couple thousand feet closer to that silver, vapid world was the tipping point. I turned off asphalt onto a dirt road that still bore the pockmarks and divots from the spring thaw. I threw on my brights. Within a quarter mile, it began to feel like real wilderness. Bristlecone pines leaning over the path. The moon glimpsed for brief moments through furry branches. Silky banners of fog caressed the trunks of trees and snaked across the road. The car jolted and shuddered as it dipped in and out of potholes. I found myself gripping the steering wheel so tightly, the blood drained from my fingers. Jesus! An oak stood in the center of the road with strands of dewy grass hanging from its antlers. I jammed my foot onto the brake pedal and the cruiser skidded for a moment before finding traction. The beast was uninterested in how close it had come to losing its life. It dipped its head, almost as if in acknowledgement, then vanished into the brush. My heart rate decelerated, and I checked the map. I had only driven half a mile, but it felt much farther. My inclination was to assume the barn fire was teenagers, but it was a school night and there was nothing else happening in town. It wasn't prom or homecoming. It was late September. Fall encroached as night descended, sending thin tendrils of chilled air through the residual heat of the day. It was a forgotten time of year, between seasons, between holidays. 
I drove the next mile with my chin hovering over the steering wheel as I scanned for animals. The radio fizzed and popped, the signal interrupted by the distance and thickening woods. In pockets, the fog was so dense I slowed the car to a crawl, dreading the thunk of a raccoon meeting its end. The foliage retreated, replaced by meadows with waist-high grass, painted steel gray by the light of the moon. I saw the glow of cooling embers ahead on the left, and assumed I found the barn. It was beyond the reach of my spotlight, and no additional details were visible. I rolled down the window. My headlights flickered, and the monitor of my tactical computer froze. I tapped a few keys and the entire unit shut down. At the same time, my power steering went out, and the engine died. What the hell? The cruiser coasted a few dozen feet as the road angled slightly downward. When its momentum expired, I pulled the parking brake. I triggered my radio, but there wasn't even a burst of static. I was alone with no calm, but recalled dispatch mentioning the man who placed the call lived up the road. With a shrug, I left my car where it was and headed out. The high grass obscured much of what was left of the barn. I cupped my hands around my face and pressed my nose to the window, but there just wasn't enough light. My belly felt as though it had been filled with writhing caterpillars, and the sensation extended to the tips of my fingers. I felt the same fear a decade before, prior to a patrol in Afghanistan. Two men didn't return from that patrol and I sometimes felt a part of me stayed on that desolate road with whatever was left of them. I opened the door, and resting on the butt of my weapon, I walked to the edge of the dirt, eyes straining to make sense of the pale shapes in the grass. The barn had partially collapsed, and there were isolated nests of fires here and there. I didn't recognize the noise for what it was. It blended so well with the natural sounds of wind and rustling branches. It was only when it stopped that I realized I had been hearing it since I stepped out of the car. Fog huddled around my knees as I skipped over the embankment and stood in the tall grass. To that point, it seemed harmless. I considered returning to the road, walking to the house and calling the station. The churn in my stomach subsided. Looking back now, I wish I'd followed my instincts. Instead, I trudged through the constricting wet blades of grass to investigate. The night air was cool, almost cold, yet my palms were sweaty. The grip on the butt of my weapon felt slick, oily. The drone was all around me. What I mistook for boulders were people, naked people on their knees with their heads buried in the grass. Jesus, fuck! I knelt next to the closest person who did not seem to be contributing to the whirring drone noise. A voice called out and I stood, and returning to my weapon. We present these offerings to you, O Lord. He was backlit by the embers of smoldering wood, as well as minor blazes that still burned. The man was nude, his penis partially erect as he hoisted a large bowl over his head. 
So that you may see us, Lord. So that you may taste of the flesh once again, Lord. The gathered mass lifted their heads in unison. So that you may consummate, Lord. He faced the barn and placed the bowl on the ground, then retreated a few paces. For a moment, nothing happened. I turned back to the silent man on the ground at my feet. Sir, can you explain what's happening here? He could not, as I soon learned. The man was bald, his age disguised by shadows. He smiled, white teeth glowing faintly, and a torrent of blood streamed down his chin. He opened his mouth for me to see that his tongue was missing, replaced by a twitching stump. His eyes vibrated with manic energy, and he tilted his head back, Adam's apple bobbing as he swallowed a mouthful of his own blood, so that you may taste of the flesh. I backpedaled and unholstered my weapon. There were too many of them. If they turned their attention on me, I would not have enough bullets to defend myself. The man who had placed the bowl in front of the barn began to speak in a foul language. It was harsh and chaotic, full of spit. His voice grew louder, more urgent. The gathered mass stood and began to make guttural noises that somehow merged in with the first man's speech. I attempted to count the people, but was distracted by the spectacle. Nude men and women of every age, enraptured, frothing in anticipation. A man a dozen feet to my right collapsed. For a moment, my humanity overtook my fear. I returned my weapon to its holster and jogged to him. His body was artfully arranged on the pillowed grass, one hand grazing his brow, and the other rested on his belly which rose and fell with his increasingly shallow breaths. His legs were slightly parted to reveal the leaking wound where his genitals had been. So that you may consummate, Lord. His eyelids fluttered, and the space between breaths increased. I whipped my head around, looking for my car, looking for help. The car was dead, as the young man was about to be. And help was not coming. I returned my attention to the group and its leader, whose voice was struggling to rise above a whisper. I assumed his earlier words corresponded to the two wounded men, and guessed there must also be within the group a member missing his eyes. My mind was transported to the quagmire in Afghanistan. I remembered the specialist who manned the turret that night, the subtle shift in his countenance when he succumbed to his injuries. The terror on his face metamorphosed into a serene resignation. I remembered the gentle wisps of hair above his lip, the clusters of acne on his cheeks. When he could no longer speak, he mouthed the single word he had repeated as the life drained from his body. Mama. Mama. I shook my head. The chanting ceased. The group members shuffled forward, collecting in a mass behind the leader. They faced the barn and stood in silence. 
The man without a tongue was on his hands and knees, head connected to the earth by a thick band of blood. Whatever was about to happen would be worse than what I had seen to that point. I scanned the path of the road, searching for the house lights. The fog was fully formed by then, like a gentle gray sea. The leader pulled a small burning plank from the ruins of the barn. He placed it in the bowl with the donated organs, and that seemed to be the catalyst for what happened next. There was a structure in the center of the barn, a deeper black than the surrounding darkness. The sound reminded me of an ice storm the previous November. As the branches of trees surrendered to the weight of the ice, they snapped, popping like gunfire before plummeting to the earth with an extended sigh. The smoldering fires grew in size. Flames climbed the cracked and blackened wood of the barn, revealing the general shape of the structure within. It appeared to be an edifice of substantial size. The few remaining walls of the barn collapsed, and only the statue survived the demolition. The leader dropped to his knees in submission, and the gathering repeated the exercise. I was the only person standing. The sound of splintering wood persisted, reaching a crescendo as the black shape transformed into something I did not understand for some time. I am grateful for the cloud cover. Had I seen it in the light of the full moon, I might have deposited my eyes in the offering bowl. It was a chimera of sorts. Its various appendages culled from multiple species. It had the head of a goat and the antlers of a stag. It was bipedal, with thick fur-covered legs ending in hooves. Its torso was mostly human, though the hair was more like a pelt. The beast's antlers might have grazed the ceiling of the barn had it still been standing. I stumbled backwards, landing in the arms of a man who spilled hot tears on the back of my neck. I felt his body press into mine. Do you see Do you see him? I did see him. I saw a creature of pure power. When his antlers swiveled in my direction, I felt less significant than a single grain of sand in a desert that touched every horizon. I sensed his cosmic intelligence, the knowledge of eons. He had taken form on Earth at the beckoning of this group of adherents, who spoke his name with salivating tongues. Do you see? The gods surveyed his flock, antlers cutting canals through the mist. The leader held the offering bowl above his head, arms shuddering. Do you see? The man's fingers burrowed into the flesh of my arms. I see. I see. The god accepted the bowl and reached within. No, you do not see. My world went dark. The sound awoke me. I blinked the sleep from my eyes, aware at once of a throbbing near my occipital bone. I rubbed the back of my neck as my ears pinpointed the source of the noise. 
I was wondering if you were going to show up. The old farmer wore a robe and held a copper mug of something that steamed in the chilled morning air. He tapped the window again and motioned for me to roll it down. Instead, I opened the door and dismissed him for a moment as I scanned the hillside. Very little was left of the barn, though a few stubborn coals still burned, the smoke a similar gray as the fog, my mind recalling the images of a few hours ago. And the people? The old man shrugged. I guess they left. Wasn't my barn anyway. To tell the truth, I've never met the owners of this property. I always assumed they were rich folks from out of state. You didn't see anything? He sipped from the copper mug. I went to bed after I put the call in. Appreciate you coming out. What were you doing in your car, if, if you don't mind me asking? My fingers grazed the hard mass at the base of my skull. I don't know. Like... My cruiser died on me and I went to investigate the fire. The people there. There were people. I... You didn't see anything? Nope. Went to bed and had the most wonderful dreams. I directed my gaze at him. Dreams? He nodded. His smile nearly touched his dangling earlobes. His face was so wrinkled it was difficult to believe the skin had ever been smooth. You dropped this, by the way. He thrust a small book into my chest and shuffled into the mist. I looked toward the ruins and the sloping land behind. There were paths carved in the grass, one wider than the others, disappearing into the fog. They would fade in time, removing all traces of the madness of a few hours ago. The Book of Muzor. The title was embossed in minimalist gold script. I flipped through the pages as I returned to the car. My clearest memories of Afghanistan are of silence. It was so rarely peaceful in that country. Beyond the screech of inbound mortars and the roar of the A-10 were the noises of everyday life. Motors, children, lots of goats. It was typically quiet in that sliver of time when night surrendered to the dawn. Even war has a shift change, I guess. I longed for silence. When I found it, I wrapped it around myself like a protective blanket. Safe from mortars, safe from bombs, insulated from the final whispered words of a dying teenager. Mama. I found the silence again in the words of a book. The book described a vast and empty void, the lightless expanse between stars. There, the silence was absolute. It described a sleeping god drifting through the void, waiting to hear his name spoken again.
Our parents can be a source of great love and support, but they can also, well, mess us up. Never is this more true than the case where the parents are darkly powerful magic users. In this tale, shared with us by author A.E. Stuvey, we meet a man who can accurately be described as a son of a witch. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Atticus Jackson, and Nicole Doolin. So put up your warding spells, light your sage, and let's hope the apple does fall far from the tree, lest you end up like Mom and Dad. I've never read a story about witches in the suburbs or ghosts plaguing McMansions. There are never haunted neighborhoods full of brightly colored split foyers and ranch houses. Kids running down the street, laughing about whatever it is kids laugh about. Sun shining, a park nearby where the smacking sounds of bats hitting balls can be heard if you listen closely. More laughter, dogs barking, cats meowing, squirrels squirreling. These places do not appeal to witches and ghosts. They appeal to middle-class families seeking wholesome fun and nostalgia. If stories can be believed, to find a witch one has to stumble through the dark, dank woods at night, probably during a full moon. To face a ghost, one has to break into a dilapidated house, sagging into itself at the end of a dead-end street and stumble into a pentagram painted in blood on the rotten wooden floor or something. In my experience, that's bullshit. The only things that you should be scared of in the deepest forests in the world are predatory animals like Dorothy's infamous tigers, lions, and bears. Oh my. To be fair, there are several things you should be scared of in a creepy house that's falling apart, not the least of which is tetanus. No ghosts, though. Ghosts and witches are more powerful where there are people. If there aren't any people, then there is no reason for ghosts and witches to be around. Who are they going to scare out in the middle of the woods, or a house few ever enter? When you think about it, the idea that these sorts of monsters would be far away from humanity is laughable. They have a job to do, after all. Nightmares to make. And I know for a fact they live in the wholesome mix of nuclear family neighborhoods with wide streets and four-door sedans galore. I know this because my mom was a witch. And she was mean. You could ask the ghost she kept trapped in the house with us. But I don't know what happened to him. He was my dad. It's strange... The way things seem normal to kids. My sisters, Sarah and Sammy, and I didn't know any better. It was our life. It was the way things had been since we were born. How could they not be normal to us? You grow up with chickens getting murdered in your kitchen sink while your mom chants in some long-forgotten language as you eat your Fruit Loops. And it's strange when you go to your friend's house and eat chicken instead of spread its blood over the kitchen floor to curse the Schwann's man. It was normal 
when my dad died. And he was still there, but in two forms. His withering, dying, yet somehow soggy body and his ephemeral spirit, stuck and miserable, wandering the house and crying. When my mom told me not to worry about it as she peeled off pieces of his skin, ground his organs, and gouged his eyeballs out while carving strange symbols into his pale, sunken chest, it was just how things were. She was making medicine to make him better. The thought that he could not be better never crossed my mind. That's the way it was. Though if I can remember anything I thought was strange before I knew it was strange, it was the way she brought out the worst in people right before she destroyed them. She had this power that no one could see. It was hidden behind the veneer of normalcy. It was magic. It was this bit of her magic that set me off to wondering if things were different elsewhere, in other houses up and down our street. I was seven when the woman who lived next door to us, Madison Larrabee, picked a fight with my mom. It was summertime, really hot, melting eggs on the sidewalk hot. It was fairly early in the morning, I think, because Larrabee wanted to take my mom off guard. That's funny. My mom was always on guard. Larrabee walked over to our front door in high heels, of all things, in an outfit my mom didn't approve of. Slinky, she called it. What a whore would wear. Larrabee was angry about something. I wish I could remember what. A strange smell, maybe? All the yowling cats who seemed drawn to our yard. My sisters and I being too loud one morning when we were playing in the backyard. The backyard was the only place we could freely go. The other doors in the house were always locked. The enemy lives out there, Mom said whenever we tried to go out to the front yard. You do not need to be alone unless I say you need to be alone, Mom told us whenever we wanted to enter our bedrooms and it was not bedtime. Locked doors everywhere. I didn't understand it, but seeing Larrabee, all bulgy-eyed and angry, pounding on our front door, I was fine with all the doors being locked. Larrabee could have been mad about anything. The cats, maybe the chickens. We were weird. I mean, at that point, Dad had been dead for at least three months, and... Mom had been focusing most of her energies on bringing him back to life. So we had a lot of chickens and a few goats in our garage. Fiona Smith! Larrabee was a woman who was used to scaring people. Mom was not scared. She wrenched the front door open and shoved the storm door in Larrabee's face, snapping her vice grip like it was a weak rubber band. Larrabee stumbled back. Her heel caught in the slot between the boards in our porch and she yanked her foot out, looking like a drunken donkey in a tight dress and braying like one. You got a problem? My mother was a beautiful woman. Larrabee was trying to be. The difference was stark. Larrabee dressed like she was headed out for a fancy brunch, and my mom looked like a hobo. 
She wore her ratty red robe and a pair of matching pajama pants. There were tattered and torn black fringes on everything, but it hid the blood stains from the various chickens and other animals she'd sacrificed on the regular pretty well. She also had one of Dad's old t-shirts on. It was probably Metallica or something like that. He loved his heavy metal. After he died, she wore all of his old t-shirts. She said there was power in it. Control. Well... A bit flustered, as much by my mom's appearance as her tone, Larrabee tried her best to hold her ground. She said something, stumbled over her complaint like it was a field of dog shit. Come to think of it, I'm pretty sure I don't remember what her complaint was, because my mom made it that way. It doesn't matter anyway. After Larrabee's rant, mom crossed her arms over her chest and leaned on the doorframe. You sure you want to start this with me? It didn't sound like a challenge, at least not to me. My sisters and I were there, half listening to some cartoon video I'd put in the VCR, played at its lowest volume possible. You started this. How did I do that? Larrabee said something that's foggy now. Mom stepped out of the door and stood face to face with her. Do you think I'm scared of you? She took another step closer so that Larrabee had to take a step back. You think I'm anything like all of these lonely whores you control? Her fingers pointed up and down to indicate, to the best of my knowledge, every woman on the block. I'm not trying to scare you. I laughed at that. (laughs) You hear my boy laughing? He's seven and he knows you're full of shit. She turned, as if dealing with Larrabee any longer was beneath her. Now get going. Get happy, or I'm going to make sure you get real sad. Is that a threat? It's a promise. Mom walked inside and let the storm door slam shut behind her. Larrabee left, angry, scared. My mom spent the rest of the morning creating some sort of concoction out of newt eyes and the like. Real witch shit. That afternoon, cops came. Mom offered them coffee and donuts she had made out of the newt eye concoction she cooked up earlier. They spoke, and my mom was as polite as a preacher's wife during Sunday dinner. After their short talk with my mom, the cops went over to Larrabee's house and made sure she wouldn't be bothering us anymore. My mom scoffed at them as they headed over. It was surreal. It was magic. And there were more examples. The way our house was always clean, even though she never cleaned. She said it was her pets that did it when she slept. Her familiars. Cats from all over the neighborhood approached her like they were good friends. I never knew any of those cats' names. There was also the fact that she'd never let us have kids over. Not that we had many friends, anyway. Though our house looked nice, like everyone else's, I imagine there was something about it that usually kept people away. Occasionally, kids would come into the backyard to play, but they had to stay out of her garden. It housed plants I could describe, but you don't want my nightmares. Trust me. She never taught me any of her magic. Laughing one night after the Larrabee incident... 
When I asked if I'd ever be like her, she placed a hand on my shoulder, almost kindly, and looked at my sisters. This magic belongs to them, not you. That's not what you're for. She never told me what that meant. After Dad died, she spent most of her time flitting between the bedroom where his corporeal body slowly rotted, oddly stench-free, and the kitchen where she made potion upon potion and utilized my sisters to aid her while I watched. And my dad (laughs) cried. He tried to communicate with me a few times, saying things I didn't understand. It was like he was talking underwater and and backwards. I'll never forget the pain in his ghostly eyes as he pointed toward the bedroom where his body lay decomposing and the kitchen where my mom and sisters concocted strange remedies. This went on for weeks. Mom focused all her energies on curing Dad of death. It seems strange to write that now, but felt perfectly normal back then. But it was when she pulled an ancient book out of the attic late one night that I knew things were reaching a turning point. There was something about that book that frightened me. Was it the human skin binding? No. I'd lived with a witch my whole life. I'd seen things like that. Was it the title in a language I couldn't understand because the letters were almost alien in their structure and shape? No, again. I was familiar with that sort of thing, too. It was when she opened it that I grew frightened. My sister, standing next to me at the kitchen table, grew excited. I felt a coldness wash over me as the pages fluttered by, whispering. This book is the most powerful thing in my possession. She looked at my sisters. Someday, it will belong to one of you. My dad floated by, (laughs) moaning and shaking his head. By this point, his color had changed. He had begun his undead life as a bluish light form. Now he was a sickly green, and his eyes glowed yellow sometimes red. If it hadn't been my dad, he would have terrified me. Don't pay any attention to him. My sisters and I inched away from his gruesome form. He batted a mug on the counter. His fingers went through it, useless. He's getting upset because he wants to leave. Why can't we let him leave? I'm not done with him. I stumbled away and headed to the living room and cartoons while she flipped through the pages of her ancient tome, whispering things to my sisters I would never understand. Dad had gone from being an annoying, creepy ghost to a wailing poltergeist of sorts. Mom and my sisters chanted curses slew goats and practiced the darkest of dark arts to get my dad to calm down. All behind our magnificently manicured lawn, Mom paid landscapers to take care of. Mom's cats grew agitated. They surrounded the house day and night, meowing a chorus of the damned. Animal control collected them regularly, and Mom demurred that she didn't understand why the cats were doing this to her. They only laughed and told her they were happy to help. 
Dad's ghost was everywhere in the house, making everything cold, knocking shit over. Somehow he had figured out how to solidify enough to touch things. I heard odd crashes in the middle of the night. I woke up to kitchen chairs and strange formations on top of the counter. We need a new body. Mom announced this one morning, after she had spent all night alone with the book in her bedroom. I imagined her lying next to the now mummified body that was once my dad, and his ghost hovering over her, shaking his head, longing only to leave. Our spells won't work anymore. I thought we could change things, use the life energy of the animals to help him this time, but no. Sarah asked what needed to be done. Mom's eyes fell to me, piercing me with a momentary but studious glare. Something difficult. She pointed at me. Leave. I went into the living room that night and avoided the kitchen except to get food. Days passed and my mom and sister spent more time in my parents' bedroom. Dad hovered around them trying to block their movements. Mom spat strange curses at him that caused him to disappear for a few hours. He always came back, though, angry. One night, days later, as I sat staring at the TV, trying to ignore the growing realization in my gut that all of this was wrong, I heard clattering and crying come from the bedroom where my family had been spending most of its time. I eyed the hallway wondering if I should investigate. Another sound, like a great grinding, followed by pounding, made me jump. Like an animal, I ran straight for an escape through the back door. But I stopped, noticing the book on the kitchen table. It was the illustrations that caught my eye. From a distance, it looked as though they were moving. Writhing might be the right word but I couldn't tell what they were. Mom had left it open on the kitchen table, bubbling repugnant potions on one side and bowls of blood on the other. I don't know what had drawn me to it that particular time because at this point, the thing frightened me to no end. I was eight years old now and the growing realization that nothing in my life was normal motivated me to fear everything. Somehow, though, I was drawn to the book, like a June bug to a screen. Gulping, I approached it. When I bent my head to look at the pages, I closed my eyes and trembled, not knowing what I'd see when I studied it close up. Some banging noises sounded down the hall in Mom and Dad's bedroom. A strange, growling voice followed it. I took a deep breath opened my eyes. The illustrations were like something out of Mary Shelley's worst nightmare. Random body parts sewn together with some kind of magical, cursed thread to create a disjointed, horrific facsimile of a human body. What's worse, they were children's body parts. She was rebuilding a body for my dad so that he could find his way into it and grow up again, a new man. A 
As I studied these images, the words grew clearer and clearer. A sinkhole opened up in my stomach as I scanned the pages and touched the scar where my right arm and shoulder met. I touched another where my neck met my torso. There were more. I had seen them millions of times when I bathed or dressed. Mom had called them birthmarks. What am I? I was stuck there, hands sweating on the pages for what felt like forever. The world quieted around me. I couldn't process this information. It was hitting a massive wall of panic in my psyche. I was no longer shaking. I was still, still in a way I had never been before, and have never been since. Another crash coming from my parents' room snapped me out of it. I faced the hallway that led to their bedroom door. My heart pounding, my pits sweating and my eyes watering, I approached. I'll never know where I got the courage to do that. I'll never know if, in fact, it was courage, or if it was morbid curiosity or some sort of magic pull. Whatever it was, I was drawn. My mom had done some horrible things in her day. I knew that. She had cursed, poisoned, and scared her way through life, all the while hiding beneath the veneer of suburban middle-classery. But the images on those pages told me she was doing things far worse than even I imagined. I didn't knock. I didn't have to. The door creaked open when I approached it, as though it wanted me to see. My memory is cloudy about a lot of things growing up. But what I saw in there will stick with me for eternity. Body parts were strewn around my parents' bedroom. Blood oozed out of some, coagulated in brownish chunks around others. Some were fresh and looked as though they could get up and move around. Others were greenish, broken things. The shock of seeing these mutilated, severed pieces sewn together while my dad's translucent, snot-like form screamed into an abyss only he could see forced vomit up my throat. The tangy threads spewed forth as I saw mom and my sisters there, covered in the gore of human entrails and ichor, eyeing a body, lying on the sopping black mattress, parts connected with glowing golden thread. All that was missing was the head. The smell almost knocked me over. It wasn't the rot of death. Somehow mom had covered that well. It was evil. Good. I'm glad you're here. My sisters approached me, bloody hands reaching out. It's time. Slick with the blood of their victims, my sister's hands couldn't get a good grip on me. I stumbled away and ran. I tried my bedroom door, but it wouldn't budge. I yanked on the front door, but it was locked too. Always locked. My sisters, like little blood-soaked demons, chased after me, 
murderous lust in their eyes, evil in their eyes. I headed through the kitchen toward the back door. My sisters, slipping on their own bloody feet on the linoleum, were right behind. Somewhere, Mum was laughing so loud I thought she'd break the house's foundation. I hoped we'd all sink down and away from this mess and I'd never have to think of it again. I reached the unlocked back doors I dreamed of not knowing. The backyard was covered in cats who did not want me to leave. They attacked from all sides while my sisters tried to pull me back in. But fear was fueling my drive and I could not be stopped. I'm not sure how many cats I killed that night to make it out of our privacy fence, which I leapt onto and scurried over. But they did not go down in a fight. I still have scars from some of their claws. When I landed in the alley, shaking the last cat off of me and stomping on its head, I broke, running, screaming, crying into the night, and straight into Madison Larrabee. She had been jogging down the alley. She saw the bloody handprints on my arms, the cat scratches over my face and legs, and she scooped me up. We called the police. They arrived far quicker than I expected them to, and invaded my house, guns at the ready. They didn't need them, though. Mom was passed out in her bedroom, surrounded by eleven corpses and pools of blood. My sisters were in a daze in the backyard, surrounded by an army of cats. I don't know what happened to Dad. Mom was put in an institution. Sarah, Sammy, and I were put in foster homes. Life went on. When I grew up, I tried to find any birth records for me. All the state had were orphan certificates and documents explaining how old they thought I was. Some mundane medical records, psychiatric evaluations, and the like. There were medical papers on the strange scars at many of my joints. Scars I thought were normal for so many years. Today, Sarah is a witch, just like Mom was. It happened after Mom was institutionalized. A magic swooped over her like a dark cloud, and she changed. Sammy committed suicide after Mom died. Her ghost, I imagine, lives in Sarah's house. I don't talk to them. The last time I saw any of my family was at Mom's funeral. It was a quiet affair in a potter's field behind the institution where she had spent the last ten years of her life, dazed and confused. We were the only ones there. Well, us and some cats. I live in the woods now, in what probably looks like a haunted cabin, far away from people, far away from witches and ghosts, far away from anything scary.
Arachnophobia can be a challenging fear. Those horrible eight-legged creatures are everywhere. In cracks, in holes, beneath the floorboards. But in this tale, shared with us by author René Wren, we're asked to consider another location in which spiders might make their home. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock, Nicole Goodnight, and Mary Murphy. So hug your body pillows tight, keep a can of insect repellent on hand, and dare to ask, can spiders lay eggs under human skin? tired, anxious, but I just want to finish getting my story out there. This whole mess started only a few days ago with a damned spider, as always. You see, I suffer from a severe case of arachnophobia. I can't even look at pictures of spiders without despairing and panicking. Even when I'm talking about them, there's this lurking fear in the back of my mind. One of my friends once thought it was hilarious to scare me with a plastic spider. It freaked me out so bad that I jumped up, rushed off, and hit my head against the closet. I ended up needing three stitches and had to spend half the night at the hospital. Good going, Steve. You really outdid yourself there. Now, where was I? Right, Saturday. I had planned to spend the weekend relaxing and unwinding after a long and stressful week. This idea evaporated the moment I found a spider web. It was right next to a tiny hole in the door frame that led into the kitchen. I vacuumed it away and sealed the hole as best as I could. I told myself this was all that was necessary. My mind, of course, wouldn't have it. Paranoia crept back in like the imaginary spiders it told me had invaded my apartment. It wasn't long before I started hearing the sounds of small, skittering spider legs. It wasn't half an hour later that I started to check the whole place. After that, I ended up vacuuming and cleaning the entire apartment twice. My friends think I'm suffering from OCD, but that's not it. I just can't help but go through the place meticulously. This time, like so many before, I found nothing. No webs, no spiders. When I went to bed, I was still somewhat anxious. Finding nothing could mean there were no spiders around, but it could very well mean that I'd simply not found them. Soon enough, my thoughts went in a different direction. What about that hole in the wall? Did it mean there were spiders inside? I lay in bed, telling myself I was plain silly. 
There was no way spiders could dig, especially not through walls. Still, I felt the familiar rush of anxiety. My heart rate went up, and I started to feel dizzy like so many times before. I must have laid in bed for at least an hour, occasionally shaking before I drifted off into an uneasy sleep. I was woken up by noise all around me. As I lay in bed, it felt as if the walls around me had become alive. They were shaking and breathing. While I still tried to understand what was going on, I heard the sound of millions of tiny skittering legs. Then the walls burst open and I was drowned under a wave of eight-legged horrors. The moment I woke up, I jumped off the bed, swatting and beating at my body before I realized it had all been a dream. I fell to the floor, sobbing, hugging my body and cursing my brain for conjuring up this nightmare. I don't remember how long it took me to calm down. Most of Sunday was a blur that I spent huddled up into blankets in the center of my living room. I was a shaking and shivering mess. One minute I told myself there were no spiders in the walls, the next I was listening for the tiniest sounds around me. I'm not sure if I even ate anything that day. In the end, I must have passed out from sheer exhaustion on Sunday evening. When I woke up on Monday morning, I was mostly myself again. I was still somewhat wary of the walls, but my panic attack had subsided. I guess my brain realized how silly it was to be afraid of them. Somewhat tired and still scatterbrained, I dropped my keys. They vanished behind a small cupboard in my hallway. Cursing at myself, I crouched down to find them. I reached out with my hand and felt around. Right at that moment, I felt something brush over my skin. I yelled up in surprise and pulled my arm back. Shock turned into absolute panic when I saw a spider sitting on my right arm. I screamed, shook the arm, and then started beating down at the spider with my left hand. I was out of it, hitting the arm over and over again, swatting to get rid of the spider. The moment it finally fell to the ground, I stomped on it over and over again. Only when nothing but a disgusting mush remained did I rush to the bathroom. I let warm water run over my arm while scrubbing it desperately with a washcloth. It was at this moment that I saw a tiny wound on my arm. At first I told myself I was wrong. It had to be a mistake. I had scrubbed my arm too hard, nothing else. After a while, I couldn't deny my paranoia anymore. There was absolutely no doubt. It was a spider bite. The moment I started attacking the spider, it must have bitten me. My mind was running at lightning speed. What if it had been a poisonous spider? Was there poison pumping through my veins right at this moment? I felt weird almost instantly. My heartbeat sped up and I felt short of breath. The moment I stepped out of the bathroom, I felt dizzy. 
so much that I had to lean against the wall for a beat. In the hallway, I pushed the damn cupboard over, picked up the keys, and rushed outside. I needed fresh air, but most importantly, there was a doctor's office nearby. My body was shaking, and it felt as if my mind was slowing down. For a moment, my vision seemed to go blurry. I told myself it was anxiety, a panic attack that I had to calm down. There was this creeping voice in the back of my mind, though. What if it's poison? What if that spider was dangerous? What if you're dying right now? What then, Sandra? Minutes later, I was pacing back and forth at the doctor's office. A nurse hurried over to me. Ma'am, what's wrong? What's the problem? Please try and stay calm, ma'am. We can help you, we just need to know what the problem is. I couldn't stand still, though. The moment I stopped, my heart rate went up. Breathing became harder, and my arms and legs started to feel all tingly. No, I had to keep moving. Only after a while was I able to get the words out. I was... I was bitten by the... Bitten by... Bitten by what, ma'am? Bitten by a... A spider. Spider bite. It took her a few moments to understand what was going on. Then she came back and gave me a small shot. Everything's going to be fine. Calm, deep breaths. It's okay. The shot will help. Nothing bad's going to happen. We've got you. Gently, she guided me to a bench and sat me down. Do you remember anything about the... the creature? Any kind of marks on her? Any distinguishing features, I guess? I don't remember. I kinda... I just... I mimed a splatting motion with my unbitten hand. The nurse smiled softly, like she understood. I could see a faint shiver run through her body, and I felt like I'd found a kindred spirit in my hatred of the creatures. It was a few minutes later that the doctor came to see me. He assured me that there was no such thing as venomous spiders around here, at least not the lethal type. He even told me that the ones who even were venomous at all were rarely sighted in our area. He took only a short look at my arm, smiled, and told me nothing was wrong with it. The wound was small, and it looked like I'd only scratched it open myself. No sign of any poison. He prescribed me a sort of ointment that would help treat the wound and keep it free from infection. What he was more concerned about was my mental state. He asked me if I was seeing a psychiatrist, and if I was often suffering from episodes like this one. It wasn't normal at all, not even when considering my arachnophobia. I hated this type of talk ever since I was a little girl when my mom had dragged me from one psychiatrist to the next. I made a few excuses, ripped the prescription for the ointment from his hands, and made my way out. Once I'd gotten the ointment from a nearby pharmacy, 
I made my way back home. When I opened the apartment door, it didn't feel like home at all. It felt as if the place had been invaded by an invisible enemy that was lurking in the shadows. I strode towards my bathroom, scanned each surface, and then locked the door behind me. Once I felt safe, I started to administer the ointment. I know I used too much of it, and bandaging up the arm was ridiculous. Still, it helped to calm me down, at least a bit. When I still hadn't been able to calm down by noon, I gave my friend Lisa a call, pacing back and forth as I waited for her to answer. Lisa and I go back forever. We became friends back in middle school and have been hanging out ever since. We were even going to university together. She and I couldn't be more different. Lisa is the fun, outgoing type, while I am an anxious introvert. The only thing we had in common was that we both smoked weed. The moment she picked up, I asked her if she had anything that could help me calm down. Maybe weed or maybe something else. Something a bit stronger. I knew Lisa had a way of getting things. At first, she laughed at my freak out over a mere spider bite. When I told her about my reaction, though, Lisa became serious. She said she'd come over later today and bring something that she was sure would help. I stayed in the bathroom for a while longer, but then I finally risked making my way back to the living room and my laptop. At first, I went on YouTube, put on some music, and watched a few random videos. Soon enough, curiosity overcame me, and I looked up information about spider bites. God, the images I found. I was never one of those people who could look at gore, but what I saw there, I'm not sure what it was. It might have been an infected wound or something. There was one thing I read that made me close the lid of the laptop in an instant. I read on a less than legit looking site that spiders could lay eggs under human skin. That's bullshit. It's an urban legend and nothing else. There's no such thing. And even if there's no way we'd have anything like that here, I'd have heard of it happening. I almost jumped up. I opened the door and relief flooded me at the sight of Lisa's familiar grin. Quickly, though, her smile dropped. Jesus, what's the matter with you? Can spiders lay eggs under human skin? What the hell, Sandra? What what did you do? Watch some shitty horror movie or something? No, I read things on the internet. Oh and... god, that's that's even worse. Don't read about things on the internet, okay? Yeah, but what if No buts. You'll always find the worst cases online. I'm dead serious. A bump on the arm? You need an amputation. A slight headache? Dizziness? Brain tumor. It's always the same. Rule number one, Sandra, especially for you, never Google any symptoms online. I know, Lisa. 
You're fine, silly girl. Calm down, will you? Jesus, you're a mess today. Lisa stayed over for almost two hours. She tried her hardest to tell me a couple of funny stories to take my mind off things. It helped, at least for a bit. She'd also brought me an unmarked container of pills. She told me they were anxiety pills that a friend of hers had given her. They'll pretty much knock you out instantly, so be careful with them. I told myself I'd wait till evening. If they'd really knock me out, it was a chance to get a good night's sleep for once. I put on a random show and tried to relax. While I watched a pretty cast of high school students talk about teenage woes, my mind started to wonder. Those things I'd read, could they be real? I pulled the bandages off my arm to have a look. I was scared of what I'd find and shivered before I removed the last layer. For a moment, one of the gruesome images I'd seen popped up in my mind again. What I saw was the complete opposite. It was a tiny, almost invisible swelling. There was nothing terrible about it at all. I almost laughed when I saw it. When I pressed it for a bit, some blood came out and it stung a bit, but there was nothing weird about it. I started to tear at the corner of the skin. All it did was to make it sting more and increase the bleeding. After a while, I had to force myself to stop. I looked at what used to be a small wound and was now almost twice the size. Stop toying with it, you idiot. While I put the bandages back on, I decided to take one of Lisa's pills. Otherwise, I might start messing with the wound again. I took one out, swallowed it, and put the container back into my pocket. So much for waiting till evening. It took about a half an hour, but I started to calm down. And soon I felt quiet, almost tired. I remembered that I'd not eaten anything due to all my anxiety, but all I could think about was resting. I told myself that I'd take a nap and eat something once I was awake again. I'm not sure when exactly I'd fallen asleep, but it was already nighttime when I woke up again. I was all sweaty and suffering from a terrible headache. The moment I moved around in bed, I felt exhausted and hot, almost as if I was burning up. I made my way to the medicine cabinet in the bathroom and took some ibuprofen to fight the headache. The moment I was about to go back to my bedroom, I noticed something strange. At first I thought I imagined it, but then I looked closer and confirmed. It looked as if there was a bump below the bandages, all swollen up. As I stared at it, the memory of a dream crept back into my mind. In the dream I had... No, there'd been something wrong with me. The moment I saw the bump on my arm again, memories flooded my mind. I dreamed about spiders 
in my arms and legs and being eaten alive by them. I clung to the sink, almost throwing up. I took another one of Lisa's pills and told myself I should go back to bed. But I couldn't. I couldn't help it. I ripped the bandages off my arm and found a bump below. It was almost a sort of giant, pulsating blister. I gagged, and when I had a closer look, I saw something moving inside of it, below the skin. It couldn't be. It couldn't be. I almost bumped into the doorframe on my way towards the kitchen. I had dark spots in front of my eyes as I ran down the hallway, and the moment I made it to the kitchen, I slumped down on the floor. I felt dizzy. My whole body seemed to be pulsating now. The moment I could move again, I grabbed hold of a knife from the counter. It almost slipped from my hand twice while I stared at the disgusting bump on my arm. Something was definitely moving inside of it. I didn't hesitate another moment before I cut into it. The pain was much more excruciating than I'd expected. As the blood ran down my arm in warm gushes, I saw something else. Something much, much worse. Tiny white things came flooding forward with the blood. Little pale flecks among the red. Then, just as the white specks dissipated, I saw the small spiders that came crawling out of my body. The knife clattered from my hand, and I could only stare at it in horror and disbelief. The blood, the eggs, and of course, the small spiders. As soon as they crawled free from the wound, they began to bite into the surrounding flesh. Already the creatures were beginning to burrow back below the skin. I dragged myself up, put my arm into the sink, and poured hot water over it. I clenched my teeth, but soon enough I could only scream in pain as the hot water scalded my arm. I hoped, no, I prayed that it would wash out or burn up all those tiny spiders. After a long minute of almost unbearable pain, I stopped and looked at the arm again. There was still movement, and I could make out tiny tunnels inside of my flesh. I used the knife once more, this time to cut deeper. After a while, I didn't even feel the pain. I was all dedication. Dedication to finding the spiders inside of my arm. The more I cut, the more tunnels I seemed to discover. I carefully carved away the infected flesh. Tiny hunks of flesh and pieces of skin fell from my arm and onto the ground. I saw the eggs, the spiders, the tunnels. Only once I was sure none of it was left did I stop. By now I was shaking from a mixture of pain and exhaustion. My whole body felt cold, sweaty, and tingly. Putting the bandages back on was nothing short of torture. 
My right arm was now little more than a hot, pulsating mass of pain. I blacked out at least once while I put the bandages back on. Around and around I put them. Once done, I noticed the deep gash I'd left in my own arm. I felt sick, anxious, and scared when I realized what I'd done. I was still bleeding, but had scalding my own flesh somehow lessened the bleeding? I had no idea. I fought my way back to the bedroom. My arm was hurting so much, it was unreal. Each step, hell, even the slightest shift sent waves of pain through me. Once back in my bedroom, I couldn't help but think about spiders again. What if they were still inside me? Could it be? What if they were crawling through my arm right now, digging their tunnels deeper inside of my body? That moment, I felt another surge of anxiety and panic coming to me and took another one of Lisa's pills. After that, I lay in bed for at least an hour, but I couldn't sleep. There was the pain, but there was another thought. What if that spider really came from inside of the wall? What if that spider had dug through the wall to get here? It would be so easy for its young to dig through flesh. Oh God, what if I'm actually right? Still lying in bed with the low light of the lamp next to me, I started to take the bandages off once more. They were wet and sticky with half-dried blood and almost glued to my flesh. Would there be spiders again? Oh, please let there be none, please. What I revealed was nothing but a gruesome mess of bloody flesh and whitish, scalded snippets of skin. There were no tunnels, no eggs, and no spiders. There was nothing. I sat there, shivering. Had I imagined things? Had I just seen something that wasn't there and then done all this? I didn't know anymore. I laid down again, but I barely closed my eyes when I felt an itch on my leg. My heart skipped a beat, and I was wide awake. Had I brushed against it just now, or was it something else? I turned on the night lamp and scanned my leg. There it was, on the side of my thigh. Another bump. Don't tell me. Oh God, what the hell, what the hell, what the hell? There's no way. The moment I touched it though, I could feel the movement below. It took me long, painful minutes to get back to the kitchen. This time, I cut without any second thought. I brought the knife down, and the moment the skin ripped open, spiders started to spill out of me. I tried to hit them and swat them away before they were able to dig into my flesh again, but they just vanished. 
Had there ever been any? What if there are no spiders inside my leg? I have a fever, right? What if this is a dream? Is any of this even real at all? But what if? I am so sweaty and itchy all over. My body is trembling and I am starting to feel numb. Are they going for my nerves? What if they do it so I can't feel them anymore? So I think that I'm okay? <laughs> Has it always been so cold in here? Why is there no pain anymore? I've been here for a while now. I still have the knife. And... I'm still digging. There's sweat. Wait, no. Blood all around me. I still see the spiders from time to time. Whenever I do, I cut. I feel like I'm slowly getting them. Most of them are in my right leg, so I've been busy. I feel like there's few of them left anymore. That tingly sensation in my leg is almost gone now. By now I'm almost searching for them blindly. I've cut here and there at random. My vision has gone too blurry to see them clearly. I've cut so much. So much work. So tired. The skin is all tangled up and in stripes. The blood still brings them forward. There's so much of it now. But that's good, isn't it? It means that a lot of them aren't in my body anymore, right? I can't think at all too clearly anymore. I'm a bit confused and exhausted, tired. I think I'm going to rest for a bit. In our final tale, we meet a woman faced with a challenge straight out of a nightmare. As we learn from author M.J. Pack, the woman finds herself in possession of a watch, which she soon discovers holds a dark, cursed secret. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Peter Lewis, Dan Zapula, Sarah Thomas, Nicole Goodnight, Atticus Jackson, and Nicole Doolin. So stay wound up tight, because time's running out, and things are going to spiral out of control just as soon as you hear the first tick.
I suppose by now, I know the difference. The difference between being helpful and getting into something you shouldn't. I had always told myself that it didn't matter. Not really. Not if everything worked out okay. That sometimes I needed to step in when no one else would. Not with big stuff, usually. Like, I remember this one time. I was at Walmart getting my weekly groceries, and the guy ahead of me was trying to pay for a car battery. I'd heard him on the phone with his boyfriend, freaking out about being stuck in the city without a working vehicle. The guy was on the verge of tears, really about to lose it. And that was before he gave the money to the cashier. Sweetie, that's not enough. The guy, almost a kid, really. A young black guy with a bewildered face looked at her like she'd just spoken in French. I saw the price. It's eighty-five seventy-four. Sweetie, that's the sticker price if you bring in your car battery. When you don't exchange, it's an extra $12. Now the guy kid really started to get upset. I could tell he wanted to argue more, but what could he say? For whatever reason, he didn't have the other battery. Maybe he'd thrown it away or it had been stolen or whatever. But the fact was he needed more money to make his car work again. I knew all this because I was standing behind him, listening to every word he said, ready to step in at any minute. Not everyone steps in when they should, you know? How much do you need? At first, he looked suspicious. Like he couldn't believe someone would just give him money. Seven dollars. I got eight out of my purse and handed it over. The way his face brightened, man, it made my day. It really did. Thank you so much, lady. He whispered, like he didn't want the people behind us to know what had happened. I told him to pay it forward. That's a carry classic. Top off the good deed by asking others to do the same. After he left with his new battery, the cashier smiled at me. That was a real nice thing you did, hon. I shrugged like it didn't matter, like it was no big deal. But it was a big deal. To me, I mean. And maybe at the time, it was because I thought I had done that guy a kindness. Given him what he needed when no one else would. That might even be true at its core. Yet it's hard to ignore the needling little sensation that I did it so that I could feel good. I did it because every time I stepped in to help out a fellow human in distress... I got this rush not unlike that shot of vodka that finally puts you over the edge. Everything just feels good. And you feel good because you did something good. And goddammit, what a good fucking person you are. You stepped in when no one else would, and that makes you special. Right? So, I'm getting off track, I guess. This story is not about car batteries, or Mr. Guy Kid, or the cashier at Walmart. It's about what happened on a totally normal Wednesday afternoon. And unlike a lot of stories that start with some great explosion of action and drama, this one starts with spreadsheets. I hated making those fucking spreadsheets. But I had to because it was Wednesday. It was almost noon, and if I wanted any time to eat, I had to finish the reports that had become a cruel form of weekly punishment. Marketing meeting at 2 p.m., 
advertising versus profit report. Editorial meeting at 3.30, ad space versus ad income versus membership fees. These two terrible things meant Wednesday morning was 10% putting in actual data and 90% color-coding each block of information so my bosses could read it easier. Green for good, obviously. Yellow for warning. Orange for bad. Not red, like you'd think, because I'd already made that mistake and was met with a stern warning that red hurt their eyes. Also, red was too negative. Like if I changed the color of the block, it would somehow help the number inside it. The murmur started slow, barely a ripple of whispers through the cubicles around mine, but I ignored it and focused on the task at hand. Had to get the spreadsheets done if I wanted some of those sweet street tacos for lunch. Format cells, shade cells, merch. With any luck, I'd be done in 30 minutes, maybe less. A few co-workers hurried past my cube, saying something to each other in low, urgent tones. I gave them a glance before looking back at my reports. Format, shade, merch. The whispers had risen to full-blown conversation within a few minutes. It was hard to tell how much time had really gone by. In spreadsheet hell, time has no meaning. So I control S and poked my head up to see what the hell was going on. Maybe somebody had brought a cake. Was it somebody's birthday? Shit, I hadn't signed the card. I caught the eyes of Molly, one of the copywriters whose cube was right across from mine. Her hands were twisting her scarf into worried knots. I mouthed, birthday? To her, unwilling to out myself as an office birthday forgetter. I watched her mouth move, but couldn't get the words. I rolled my chair closer to her, across the aisle into her cube. I didn't get the card passed round to me. Is it somebody's birthday? She gave me a look that clearly said, you're an idiot. But Molly is too nice for those kinds of words. I think there's someone outside. She emphasized the last word with a helpless one-fingered point towards the windows. This made less sense to me than asking about a birthday card made to her. What do you mean, outside? But she was already standing up from her chair to follow one of the accountants who was hurrying past us. Fred, I think his name was. Maybe Frank. He was dialing frantically on his cell phone. She asked him what was happening, but he shook a hand in her direction. The universal symbol for, shut the fuck up, I'm on the phone. 911? Yes, hi, I'm on the 17th floor of the Shell building, and there's someone on the ledge. Please send help. There's someone on the ledge. That's what he said. I remember very clearly, because I remember thinking it was a phrase I'd only heard in television shows or movies. Molly gasped and put a hand over her mouth, in a move that seemed both ladylike and pointless. I looked towards the window she'd pointed to, one that perfectly framed our view of the city. I saw little clusters of co-workers near that window, but no one had gone up to the sill, like there was a five-foot force field keeping them away. That wasn't what it was. They didn't want to get involved. They were content to look, to stare at whoever was out there, but not step in and actually do anything. What's everybody doing? Fred or Frank was still on the phone with 911. 
So when I spoke, he scuttled farther away, putting a finger in one ear so he could hear better. That left me with Molly and her hand over her mouth. Well, so no one's going to try to help him? Help? What are we supposed to do, Carrie? Something! I pushed away from my chair and stood up. I mean, right? Somebody's got to do something! The others stared back at me blankly, like a collection of china dolls on a shelf. Just standing there, a bunch of confused children in adult clothing, waiting for someone else. Someone with what? More experience? More purpose? And while we waited, whoever it was outside was waiting too. For someone to fucking do something. Before I knew it, I was crossing the threshold of their invisible force field and pulling at the latches on the window in question. They'd been painted over a long time ago, so I had to pick at them until I peeled some of the layers back, watching as the beige paint cracked and gave way. There was an odd, strangled sound that rippled through the onlookers, something between a cry and the sound you make when you suck air through your teeth. Good old Carrie. Always ready to step in. And even better if there's a show, huh? I pushed the window up with a grunt, slowly, both because it was a tough bitch to open and because I didn't want to scare whoever was out there. When I had it cracked enough to where I could stick my head outside, I paused, hoping I hadn't startled them. Then, leaning my midsection against the windowsill, I leaned forward. Cold December wind whipped my hair over my face and I had to push it out of my eyes to see the man standing there, back pressed against the building, arms spread out, palms down as though he were ready to push away and fly at any moment. Hey. He had been looking down, but now he looked at me, almost serene in his composure, despite the fear in his eyes. Hey. The man was wearing a black sport jacket, Something nice from Prada or Dior, over a button-up shirt. He was wearing trendy jeans, but somehow the look was all wrong. Something wasn't right with it, and not in a fashion sense sort of way. In the way you feel when you've come home after a long vacation, to see that the door you left locked is wide open. His shoes. They were scuffed and dirty, but below the grime you could tell they were once expensive too just like his wrinkled shirt and rumpled haircut. All of it had once been nice and neat and worth a lot of money, and now it was somehow shitty and up here on the ledge of a high-rise building. Could you come inside? I was sure to keep my voice gentle, ever the kind soul to a friend in need, ever the idiot about to ruin her life. You've got everyone in here pretty worried, you know? I didn't recognize him from the office, so he had to work on another floor. Or maybe he didn't work in the building at all. He shook his head once, a brisk little gesture that was both firm and final. Can't. There's no point. This is the only way. The wind blew again, hard. I pushed my hair back, trying to tuck some behind my ear so I could keep him in my sights. Behind me, I heard muffled voices. They probably wanted to pull me inside, but were too cowardly to actually make a move. What was I supposed to say to him? 
I knew nothing about this guy except that he used to spend a lot of dough on his clothes. Yet here I was trying to talk him out of suicide. There was nothing that came to mind except the endless list of worn-out cliches, but hey, guess what, Carrie? You already stepped in, so you're up to bat. Play ball. There's got to be another way. I leaned a little farther out to see him better, and suddenly the dizzying height struck me with a smack of vertigo. I pulled back, gripped the window's concrete ledge tight, and forced a smile. This can't be the only way. I tried. He was fixed on the cars and streets, 17 floors below us, scanning back and forth in a way that reminded me of lab rats crammed in cages. Maybe there's another way, but if there is, I haven't found it because, Jesus Christ, I tried. Swing and a miss. Come on, Carrie, you do this all the time. You connect with strangers and do what others don't. You can do it. Tell this guy the right thing, because it's what he needs. There's so much to live for. <laughs> oh, little girl, you're wrong. The man took his eyes off the traffic below to grin at me in a way that said he felt very sorry for me indeed. Strike two. So, you really think there's nothing? There's nothing in life worth living for? He shook his head. I glanced at the gold ring on his left hand, the one stretched closest to me. What about your wife? Do you have kids? Family? Friends? I was grasping at straws. At that moment, I felt maybe this was the one time I shouldn't have stepped in. Maybe the others were right to wait for someone better. But it was too late. I'd already started it. I think about that moment a lot. The one where I realized I'd set something in motion I couldn't undo. It replays in my head like a broken projector screening a horror movie where the heroine is about to do exactly what she shouldn't. The type of scene where you want to scream, Don't go in the house! But she does anyway. I did once. Not anymore. The grin was still on his face, but now it was covering something far worse. Some expression of terror and helplessness. His eyes drifted back towards the drop ahead of him. Wait! Wait, there's gotta be more! There's always more! There's so much to life! There's gotta be something you're here for, is it some reason? This brought him back to me. His eyes were steely sharp and suddenly very, very clear. You believe everyone's here for a reason? Yes. Everyone has a purpose, something that keeps them here. Hmm? Yes. Yes, yes, and I'm sure you have a purpose too. So please, sir, please step away from there and come back inside. He stared at me for a long time. Then he laughed again. That same short bark that held no humor at all. What's your name? Carrie. He scanned my face as though he were deciding something. You're a nice girl, Carrie. You shouldn't bother with me. Go back inside. Just let the man on the ledge do what he needs to do. Huh? Walk away. My heart was a hot lump in my throat when I saw his feet shuffle a little. But I reached for him again. 
and flexed my fingers, gesturing for his hand. I can't do that. He inched to the right, farther away from me. I kept my arm outstretched. Below us, I could see police cars and ambulances pulling up to the building, their red and blue lights glinting like neon signs at night. The man saw them too. He looked at me one more time and offered me a smile, the most tired, broken smile I've ever seen in my life. Okay. I felt hot tears stinging my eyes. I stretched harder, reaching towards him, feeling the strain of my muscles pulling too far. Okay? Okay. He took one palm carefully away from the wall, dipped it into his pocket, fished something out. When he was close enough to grab my hand, he, instead, pressed something into it, something cold and smooth. He took his fingers away, and I looked at what he'd given me. An antique pocket watch. It was unlike any watch I'd ever seen. Old, tarnished silver, delicate patterns running along the edges. A clear glass face that let you see all the way through. Every gear was moving in perfect sync. Cogs and wheels and wafer-thin bits of metal that worked together to create a slow but steady tick, tick, tick. I looked at the watch dumbly. Maybe you'll do a better job than I did. He was smiling again, but this time it was one of sadness. The kind you give to a friend you know you won't see again for a very long time. Don't understand. Wind it every hour on the hour. Make sure you do that. I can't stress it enough. Every hour on the hour. I, I don't understand. I looked back and forth. The watch. Him. The watch. Him. Tick. 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 There's so much to live for. That sad smile was still on his face. Then he closed his eyes and simply fell away from the ledge. He tumbled end over end, plummeting towards the ground, his body forming a horrible curve where his trendy shoes nearly met his once expensive haircut. He seemed to fall forever, and it seemed to happen in an instant. He landed on the roof of one of the police cars, I'm sure up close it was a nightmare. Splinters of glass and bone, splatters of blood and hair. But from 17 floors up, it just looked like he was sprawled out, asleep, a slow pool of red spreading near his head. I don't know how long I was up there, leaning out the window, staring at his body from above, gripping the pocket watch in my hand and listening to it tick. Tick, tick. All I know is eventually the police came and led me gently away from the windowsill in front of all my pale co-workers. And it wasn't until I saw Molly. Molly, whose face normally held only kindness for me. She was staring at me like I'd done it. Like I'd gone out there and pushed him myself. And that's when I started sobbing. For a lot of people, tears are sort of like blood. 
doesn't matter how well you know the person. Start bleeding on them or crying near them and they'll clear the room. Pretty soon it was just me and the officers who sat me down in someone's cubicle and told me everything would be alright. I'm still thinking about it. That moment where I realized I should have turned back. Because as they spoke to me in gentle, soothing tones, ensuring me that I was not to blame, but I would need to come to the station to answer a few questions, I discovered I'd pocketed the watch he'd given me. Something deep inside told me they shouldn't know about it. Couldn't know about it. And after all, it was mine now. He'd given it as a gift after saying my own words back to me. There's so much to live for. I wish I hadn't gone out there. I wish he'd picked another floor, another building. I wish he'd jumped sooner. Because I can still hear it. Tick, tick, tick. Sounding off the seconds until my life as I knew it was over. There's this psychological syndrome called folie à deux. It's French for a madness shared by two. Pretty weird shit. In simple terms, the symptoms of some delusion, often dangerous, get passed from one person to another. Usually it occurs when two people are isolated, separated from the world. Think hermits or doomsday preppers, that sort of stuff. But sometimes, folie à deux can evolve. Sometimes it twists and shifts until, like a werewolf exposed to moonlight, it becomes folie imposé. In this form, the delusion of a dominant person, the imposer, if you will, is formed during a psychotic episode. They then imprint the psychosis onto a secondary person, completing the shared madness. The difference between folie à deux and folie imposé is that it's generally accepted that if the imposer hadn't met their secondary, the secondary would have continued to live their life without suffering from any delusions. Without the imposer, the secondary gets a free pass. No shared madness. No madness at all. Do you see where I'm going with this? Maybe not. I spent two hours at the police station recounting every detail over and over. Through a thick fog of shock, I told them everything I could remember. His expensive clothes, the wedding ring, his rambling claims that he'd tried. Anything, everything. I laid it all out bare and exposed for them to puzzle over. Everything except the pocket watch. Sure, it was wrong to keep that from them. But what did they need it for? What did the watch have to do with anything? He gave it to me. It was mine. If I told the police, they would take it from me and throw it in some plastic bag where it would sit in an evidence locker for the rest of eternity. That couldn't happen. I was supposed to wind it. Approaching the end of the first hour, I caught a glance at the generic clock on the witness room's wall the same kind that hung in the halls of my elementary school, and saw that it was nearly 2 p.m. 
I was going to miss the marketing meeting, I realized, and a wild whoop of laughter nearly popped out. I cleared my throat instead and asked if I could use the restroom. In the handicapped stall, I stood in the furthest corner from the door and watched the hands of the watch, my watch, as they ticked ever closer to the top of the hour. He told me to wind it, every hour on the hour, and I thought the least I could do was honor the wishes of a man whose brain was now splattered all over the roof of some unfortunate officer's cop car. That's what I told myself at the time, anyway. Looking back, it seems like there was something else at play. But in the end, I suppose it doesn't matter, does it? Two o'clock. I wound the tiny knob at the top of the pocket watch clockwise three times. Why three? Because three felt... right. I went back to the witness room, feeling strangely satisfied and at the same time as though I'd done something naughty, gotten away with some crime, like pocketing a pack of gum and getting out of the store without a single person taking notice. I had held it together pretty well until Mike picked me up from the police station. I hadn't cried since leaving the office, tears drying on my face as I was escorted to an unsmashed cruiser. But one look at my fiancé's face lined with worry and I broke, sobbing all over again in front of everyone waiting in the lobby. Twice in one day, <laughs> it was some kind of record. I never cry. Not really. I'm one of those people you point at during funerals and wonder why they look like they're attending a particularly boring conference. I've always been that way. I need to be alone to really let it all out. But that was before I'd watched a man plummet to earth like a bag of wet laundry. Mike swept me into his arms and outside into our car so we could go home. That's what he kept saying. I'm taking you home, Carrie. Everything's okay. We're going home. I pressed my forehead against the cool glass of the passenger window and wept helplessly, watching as office buildings and midday traffic gave way to gas stations and neighborhood street signs. When we got to our house, Mike took me inside, holding me the way you'd help a little old lady climb a dangerously icy set of stairs. You can tell me all about it, or... Don't tell me anything. I mean, whatever you want to do, honey. There's not really protocol for something like what happened. No neatly formatted list online with some catchy title. Six easy steps for comforting a loved one who might have pushed a man to suicide. You won't believe number four. As soon as he opened the door, I heard the clatter clatter of nails on hardwood the unmistakable trotting of our dog Penny as she bolted from whatever soft surface she'd been napping on to greet us as we entered. Mike edged her back gently with his foot so we could get in. Her little corgi butt wiggled back and forth in pure doggy ecstasy. <sighs> There's nothing that compares to a dog that's happy to see you. There's my girl. <laughs> There's my girl. I dropped to one knee so I could gather her to my chest. I don't understand how dogs can bear their inability to process time. An hour could be a day, could be a decade to them. 
Every time I left the house for work was the last time she'd ever see me in her little dog mind. Sure, the return is always a happy occasion, but the waiting? It's got to be torture. As I was bent and petting Penny, Mike started to take the jacket off of my back. I realized at once that the watch was in its pocket and shot straight up, locking my arms so he couldn't pull it any farther. I've got it! Mike stared at me, alarmed. Sorry, just trying to help. Why did I feel so possessive of it? The cops, sure, but my own fiancé? Why would he give a shit about a stupid old pocket watch? I fingered it lightly inside my jacket, running my fingers along the smooth metal edges. Since the man jumped from the ledge, I'd wound it three times, all in secret. This seemed to matter somehow, and it seemed important that I didn't show Mike. No, I'm sorry. I just think I need to relax. I turned my back to him so I could put my jacket in the hall closet. As I did so, I transferred the watch from the pocket of my coat to the pocket of my jeans, like some quick-fingered street thief. I hung the coat on a hanger and jumped the way a guilty child would when Mike slid his arms around me from behind. I know. I'm trying to be what you need me to be right now. I want to help. He pressed a kiss to my head. When I was certain he wasn't reaching for my pockets, I relaxed into his embrace. You're doing fine. I stared at our winter wear hanging in neat rows. They had been there when I left that morning, a pleasant representation of the order my life had held before I went to the window and ruined everything. It was too quiet. I could hear the tick, tick, tick of the watch in my pocket and I started talking just to cover the sound. Do you want me to make dinner? I twisted out of his grasp. Why didn't I want him to hear the watch? Why did it need to stay such a secret? These are the questions I keep asking myself, returning to them at every possible moment, examining them like an obsessed detective studying piles of evidence and still coming up dry. Mike looked at me for a moment as though he sensed something was wrong. For a wild second, I realized, I don't cook. I never cook. Had I given myself away? Would I have to tell him about the watch? I told my mom what happened. She gave me some of her leftover Valium from when dad died. I think you should take one and try to get some rest. From his pocket, he produced a prescription bottle with a few pills inside. He shook it a little and rattled it like a baby toy. I don't know. That shit always knocks me out. It sounded nice, though, to be able to float away and not worry about the nightmare of a day I'd had. Penny nudged my shin with her nose and wiggled her butt again, wanting more pets. Dr. Mike is in the house. He went to the bathroom, filled a glass with water, brought me that and a single Valium in the palm of his hand. He pushed them at me. I hesitated, and suddenly I could see the man's pained face, hear him telling me, you're a nice girl, Carrie, watching all over again as he fell towards the pavement. 
All three things hit me at once like some sort of memory sucker punch. I took the pill and knocked it back with the glass of water. Mike got me ready for bed, even though it was only early evening. When he was digging my pajamas out of the closet, I transferred the watch again from my pocket to the drawer of my nightstand. Once I was changed, he tucked me in like I was a sick child and kissed my forehead. Everything will be all right in the morning. He stroked the hair back from my face. I nodded and forced a smile. Henny! She came barreling down the hallway and launched herself into bed, grinning her happy doggy grin. Thanks, baby. A good sleep with my warm puppy was just what I needed. Mike closed the door behind him. Penny started to get situated, pawing at the blankets with endless persistence until she was satisfied with their shape, and plopped down, eyes on me. This was a nightly ritual. Once she was in bed, she was on guard. My little protector who wouldn't know what to do with an intruder if she caught one. I felt myself beginning to drift, floating into that lazy haze that Valium always brings. When I saw the digital clock on our dresser, it was 4.59. I opened the nightstand drawer, silently, carefully, and waited until the numbers changed to 5 o'clock. One, two, three, I wound the watch. Felt better. Put it back in the drawer. Penny was already asleep. I was on the precipice of following her when I realized something. Something I hadn't thought of before. Every hour? Every hour on the hour. That was what the man had said. But surely it wasn't supposed to be every hour. Even the ones in the middle of the night. What kind of watch worked like that? It'll be fine, I told myself, but my stomach was suddenly greasy, the way it always felt the night before a school project was due that I hadn't even started on. Without the Valium, I could have stayed up and thought about it more, but I was slipping, slipping. It was too late, and I was lost in one of those deep, dark sleeps that wipes out everything, even dreams. The next morning, I woke up earlier than usual, mouth dry and funny tasting. I wondered briefly if I'd snored the night before. Snoring drove Mike nuts, but he was asleep soundly next to me, so I figured it couldn't have been that bad. It was almost 6am. Time to walk Penny and get some breakfast and wind the watch. Penny wasn't in her usual spot at the foot of the bed. That was pretty typical. Sometimes she got tired of me jostling her when I tossed and turned, and she'd head to her doggy bed in the living room. I got the watch out of my drawer, left the bedroom, and quietly shut the door behind me. Penny! Penny! No scrabble, scrabble, scrabble. Maybe she was still sleeping. I walked to the living room and peered around the couch to see her doggy bed nestled in the corner. Except I didn't see it, because there was no doggy bed there. It was gone. Maybe she'd dragged it somewhere else. I began searching other corners, but already my stomach felt greasy again. Something was wrong. 
Penny! But her bed was nowhere to be found, and neither was she. The little wicker basket I'd bought from Target to hold her plentiful mountain of chew toys was also gone. Chew toys, too. Worry turned very quickly to panic. I kept calling her name, louder now, looking behind furniture and in the backyard, even though we didn't have a dog door she could have left through. I shouted her name into the early morning air and heard nothing back. When I went to the kitchen, breath coming fast and hard, I found Mike standing in his boxers, giving me the weirdest look. What are you doing? I can't find Penny. My stomach was rolling as I pictured all the different scenarios my sweet dog could be in. Smashed flat under a car on the highway, running scared through an unfamiliar neighborhood, shivering with fright under some stranger's porch. Did she get out? What if she got hurt? And he's so little. Remember how I said I think about it? The moment where I could have turned back? How maybe if I had stayed in my goddamn seat that day, everything would be okay, just like Mike said. I'm thinking about it again. Because in the midst of my panicking about our beloved lost dog, Mike frowned and cocked his head. Who's Penny? Memories are strange. They can seem so clear in our minds, so real they're almost tangible, something you can reach out and touch, like a crystal figurine on a curio shelf. But do you know how delicate the mind truly is? How easily one can be made to believe something that never happened did, or something that definitely happened didn't? It sounds silly, but think back to any argument you've ever had that contains some real passion, perhaps with a loved one, a significant other. You're several levels deep in this argument, which has, maybe, degraded itself into a full-on fight by this time, and they say something that is a direct contradiction of a point they made only minutes ago. You tell them this, and they look you straight in the face, bewildered, and say, No, I didn't. But you remember it, right? And now they don't. So, who's right? At that point, unless you've taken the liberty to record your argument like some sort of sociopath, memory is the only thing either of you can rely on. And now it's been proven that, in your case, there are two distinctly different memories. Is life like that? Does life split off into segments each time a person recalls a memory? The events tumbling and falling into place to suit whatever former timeline is now considered correct? These are the things I think about when I'm not thinking about that moment. I stared at Mike for what felt like forever before letting out an incredulous laugh. (laughs) This kind of bullshit isn't funny, Mike. You know what I just went through. I don't have time for it. Where's our dog? Dog? We we don't have a dog, Carrie. Are you feeling okay? I felt my chest begin to hitch with panic again. If he was playing a joke on me, it was a very cruel one. But I knew Mike, and he was looking at me with a look of true concern. He wasn't the type to pull pranks, 
but I had to say it again to be sure. Penny, our dog? She's gone. I can't find her and I can't find her things. If you took them, that's okay, but I don't want to play this game anymore. Mike began chewing his lower lip in an expression I was familiar with. It was the one that meant he was about to make a decision, a decision someone else might not like. I'm going to call you in sick to work. What happened yesterday has you all confused. I want you to go back to bed and lie down. Enough was enough. I pushed past him and stomped to the hallway where I'd hung, gallery style, photos of us over the years. High school dances, college parties, holiday get-togethers. Just above a photo of me and my mother, I knew, was a photo that had been taken during our engagement session. We planned it for fall, and Mike had insisted on having Penny in a few of the pictures. Our favorite was the one of us standing beneath a canopy of autumn-on-fire leaves, holding her between us. She was grinning at the camera, and we were grinning down at her. I was going to show him this and demand he knock off whatever shit he was pulling right away. But when I got there, already jabbing an accusing finger in its direction, my heart plummeted into my stomach. There we were, in our engagement clothes I'd so carefully picked out. The trees behind us were still aflame with the colors of fall. Only now we were grinning at each other and Penny wasn't between us anymore. I was still standing in the hallway, my finger pointing uselessly at the proof that wasn't there, when Mike touched my back gently from behind. Come on, I'll call your boss. It's okay. She was there. I sounded like a child that had been abandoned in a shopping mall, explaining her parents will be right back. Right between us in this picture. She was there. I hesitated, then tapped the glass on the empty space where Penny had once been, as if it would bring her back. Okay, okay, she was there, Carrie. Mike turned me away from the photos and steered me towards the bedroom, as though I were a mental patient. But I let myself be led like one, back to my bed, because I had no other proof. Her toys were gone. She was gone and Penny just wasn't in the picture, no matter how well I remembered that she had been. I laid on the cool sheets, half listening to Mike in the other room on his cell explaining to HR why I wouldn't be in that day. What was happening? Was I going crazy? Had I caught the madness from the man on the ledge? Had he passed it on to me hand to hand like strangers exchanging the flu in a grocery store? I sat bolt upright at that thought. He had passed me something. That was true. And now, my eyes darted to the clock on our dresser. It was five past 6 a.m. I'd missed winding it by five minutes. Surely five minutes wouldn't break it though, right? A scrap of memory floated through my brain and I grasped at it like a leaf on the wind. The night before, as I drifted off to a Valium-heavy sleep, I'd been wondering this same thing. Only I'd wondered if all those hours in the night counted too. If I'd been expected to keep winding it like he'd told me, every hour on the hour, 
regardless if sleep or work or life got in the way. I pulled the watch out of my pajama pants, stared at it nestled snugly in my palm, and realized something all at once, something I knew I should have noticed sooner. The hands had stopped moving. The tick, tick, tick had gone silent. I had a sudden manic urge to wind it right then, but I stopped myself. Winding the watch now would be useless. It wasn't the top of the hour, and I'd already broken the rules. I'd wait until seven and wind it then. This made no sense, and it made all the sense in the world. When Mike came back to tell me everything was taken care of, I'd already put the watch back in my dresser drawer. Before, it had felt fun, like a secret written in a girlhood diary. But now it felt dirty, shameful, a bad report card hidden from stern parents. Just stay in bed. He was getting ready to jump into the shower. My antics regarding our now non-existent dog had put him behind schedule. There's soup in the pantry if you want it, and I'll have my phone on me all day. You can text if you want, but... I think you just need some rest. You had a real bad thing happen to you yesterday, Carrie, and it would stress anyone out. Translation. I'm trying to believe you haven't gone totally batshit nuts. So stay home today and chill out until you can prove it to me, okay? I said all the right yeses and noes until he was finally out the door and I was left alone in our house. The silence was so thick it smothered me like a blanket just a hair too heavy to be comfortable. If you've ever had a dog, you know how strange the house sounds without one. It's subtle. Most dogs don't make a lot of noise, but they have a sort of quiet presence. Every now and then, a quiet thump as they hit the ground from the couch to go explore. The clicking sound their nails make on hardwood floors. The occasional stretch, yawn, sigh that just lets you know you're not alone. Only now, I was. At exactly 7 a.m., I wound the watch three times. I stared at its shiny glass face and held my breath. After one long, terrible moment, the hands slowly adjusted themselves to where they should be, and the tick, tick, tick started again. I let my breath out in a rush. It wasn't broken, so that was good. I spent most of the day wallowing in bed or wandering the house aimlessly. This was when I first started considering the fragility of memory. I knew we'd had a dog. I knew Penny was real. I could recall so much of our time with her, picking her out at the Humane Society taking her on her first car ride, chasing her around the house after she'd escaped from the dreaded bathtub. Mike had laughed so hard he'd cried, me skidding around corners and cursing as Penny trailed shampoo bubbles down the hallway, always a few steps ahead of me. How could I remember all that if it wasn't real? I paced the living room, occasionally looking at the corner that had once held Penny's bed. I wavered back and forth between being sure I wasn't losing my mind and terribly afraid that I was, indeed, losing my mind. Every hour on the hour, I wound the watch. 
With about an hour or two before Mike came home, I sat down at my computer, as restless as if I were covered with invisible, stinking ants. I pulled the watch out of my pocket, fidgeted with it, and set it on the desk so I would be ready for the next hour. Hoping for some sort of relief from my rapidly frightening thoughts, I typed false memories into my search bar and chewed absently on a thumbnail. Right away, the page was filled with results. Just over five million of them, in fact. I couldn't be sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing, so I began scanning the headlines with the intensity of an Adderall-addicted student studying for the SATs. Wikipedia had an entry, so that was good. Time Magazine's website featured an article titled False Memories, When Your Brain Makes Stuff Up. There was even a website for a False Memory Syndrome Foundation. I thought I should apply for a scholarship there and let loose a wild whoop of laughter in my empty house, then remembered I was trying not to seem like a crazy person. I went for the Time article. Seemed the most reliable. It explained that false memories happen to everyone. Oh good, I thought. This is normal. It's totally fine to invent a beloved family pet in your head and then find out it was all just a trick of the mind. I had just gotten into the part about how this phenomenon can really cause trouble at criminal trials when I got the email notification. Irritated to be drawn away from my brief ability to convince myself of some sort of sanity, I glanced at the subject line. From Molly, at work. Thought you'd want to see this. It had a small red flag that insinuated it was urgent. I opened it, hoping for a kind message from my coworker, but there was just a hyperlink to an article from the local paper. I clicked. Man leaps to death from ledge. Do you know John Doe? I scanned it, barely able to read and therefore relive what I had gone through just a day prior. The reporter had as reporters tend to do, focused on the gory details. How high up he'd been. How he'd landed on a cop car. How death had been instantaneous. I was relieved to see she hadn't mentioned that he was speaking to someone just before jumping. That was the last thing I needed right now. I remember being puzzled. Why had Molly sent me this? She was a sweetheart, sure, but I also knew she was somewhat evangelical in her religion, so maybe she was wanting me to atone for my sin of helpfulness? For perhaps being the cause of the man's death? The article called him John Doe because they didn't have any information. No wallet on the corpse. No immediate clues as to his identity. Dental records were out of the question, as his head had apparently been no match for the metal roof of a squad car. I wondered briefly, morbidly, if he'd hit the siren part with his face. Surely, I thought to myself, his family would step forward. Someone would notice that he hadn't come home, or if he didn't live with them, that he hadn't called. Maybe recognize his expensive suit, snappy shoes... Something struck me just then. In the breakdown of the details I'd given the cops, I remembered he'd been wearing a wedding ring. So he was married, or had been, and couldn't let go. What was it he'd said when I asked him if he had them? Family or friends? 
all those 17 floors above the pavement? I did once. Not anymore. With that sad, strange grin on his face, Apollyachi Rictus. So, he had a family. That much was certain. That much I could remember. If I could trust my memory, of course. Divorced? Dead? What had happened to them? Why weren't they stepping forward to claim John Doe? Mike was calling, but I was too deep in thought. He'd startled me, and before I knew it, I had jerked in surprise and shot my arm out to grab the phone. As I did so, and I can still see the whole thing happen in slow motion. God, the whole stupid thing happening with no way to stop it. Like a particularly gruesome car crash drawn out to a quarter speed. I saw my hand brushing past the watch, pushing it towards the edge of my computer desk. It might have stopped then. It might have been okay. But I kept reaching because I'd been surprised by the sound. And it was like a weird rattlesnake strike reaction. My forearm and then elbow bumped it farther. And off the desk it went, sailing towards the earth like a stone. Or a man leaping to his death. And it was too late. Too late. And it will always be too late. It hit the ground. I saw tiny slivers of cracks like lightning spread from the center of the clock's glass face. I heard the tick, tick, tick stop so suddenly it might have been a dying heartbeat. And at the same time, the watch fell silent. So did my cell phone, mid-ring. Billie Holiday was cut short for a split second as my phone's screen read, Missed call. Then it went blank and read nothing at all. You cannot stop the world from turning. You cannot stop life from going on. You cannot make time stand still simply because you are. I know, because I tried. I stared at the watch on the ground for a very long time the hairline cracks spreading across its smooth glass face, the motionless hands. I didn't move. I thought maybe by staying perfectly still, I could fix things. When it became apparent that the watch would not resume its ticking simply because I wouldn't look away, I finally reached for my phone on the desk. My trembling thumb hit the home button. The screen lit up and displayed only my wallpaper, the time, and the date. No missed call from Mike. Here was where it all started to fall into place. Sure, maybe I knew before. Maybe I'd started to get an inkling of what it truly meant to wind the watch. But how could I have let myself believe it? The false memory syndrome was easier. A band-aid over a stab wound. A way to make myself think that the worst that was happening was a missing dog who may have never existed. But this... I jumped out of my chair and ran for the hallway. The photos still hung there, gallery style. But as I looked frantically from frame to frame, my worst, wildest suspicions were confirmed. 
the engagement photo of Mike and me, the one that had been Penny and Mike and me, was now a picture of me and the three girls I'd been best friends with in high school, sitting at a picnic table and laughing. College parties Mike and I had been to now had an empty space beside me where he had once stood. Holidays posed in front of the Christmas tree had become just me and my mom. Prom, homecoming, coronation. Whoops, look like I went to all those dances. Stag, silly me, how could I have forgotten? I just stood there with friends, grinning like an idiot. All dressed up for a dance with no boyfriend on my arm because now, just like Penny, Mike was gone. Not gone. Never had been. I went to the bathroom and threw up violently into the toilet. My trembling hands gripped the side of the bowl, trying to gain some comfort from its cool porcelain. Everyone has a purpose, something that keeps them here. I threw up again. The watch wasn't a gift. The watch was a curse. It was meant to prove that, though I was a nice girl, I didn't know anything about life or the world. I didn't know a single thing about the weight of responsibility, the crushing heaviness of being accountable for the things I loved most. I tricked myself into thinking I was responsible for those people I helped, being the person who stepped in when no one else would. But really, I just butted in whether I was needed or not to make myself feel better. Little Miss Carrie Goodeed. And I didn't know a goddamn thing. When I'd stopped retching, I got unsteadily to my feet and stumbled towards the phone on my desk. Hoping against hope, a drowning man's last struggle to stay afloat before the dark water drags him down. I dialed Mike's number. We're sorry, your call cannot be completed as dialed. I dropped the phone back on the desk. I was dimly aware that I was sobbing. Those alarming kinds of sobs that burst out of you like unexpected sneezes or hiccups. I dropped to my knees and scrambled towards the watch. I can fix it. I can fix it. I'll just wind it a few times. I can fix it. Twisted the little knob at the top. One, two, three times. But it didn't work. Kept making a tiny metal grating sound. But the hands stayed still. I tried to get a hold of myself. Willed the sobs to stop exploding from me and staggered to my feet. The watch in my sweaty palm. The phone was playing a different song. Not my man, but that didn't mean it wasn't him. It could still be Mike. Oh God, how I was praying that it was Mike. It wasn't Mike. It was my mom. Something cold ran through me. My mom. What if I couldn't fix the watch in time? She was all that was left. The only thing I had in the world I loved like I loved Mike and Penny. What happened if she suddenly blinked out of existence too? What did that mean for me? 
I swipe the screen to answer the call. <clears throat> Hi, Mom. Hi, sweetie. Just calling to check on you. I know you were all shook up after what happened yesterday, and I wanted to make sure you were getting some rest like you promised. I hadn't called her yesterday. I hadn't told anyone but Mike and the police officers. Was this what happened when the watch made people disappear? Those split timelines I mentioned before. Do they split again and patch up broken connections like carpenter ants repairing fallen tunnels in a colony? I'm all right. <laughs> Almost immediately, another breathless sob burst out of me. I clapped a hand over my mouth, chest hitching, and willed myself not to do it again. There was a moment of silence. Are you crying, Carrie? Crying? No way. Just tired, I think. I'm trying to sleep, but it's hard. I know, sweetie. You had a very bad thing happen to you yesterday. It would be enough to make anyone upset. The words were so similar to what Mike had said to me just this morning that my chest ached unexpectedly. Sure, the sobs were abating now, but all I could do was stare at the watch in my palm, the little razor-thin cracks in its glass face. I began to pick at them with the edge of my thumbnail. I just worry about you there all alone. I wish there was someone there to take care of you. You're not getting any younger, Carrie. Oh, wow. On top of the disappearing fiancé act, I also got motherly guilt about being too old to be single. The whole thing was so ridiculous, so completely insane, that I almost started laughing for real. I didn't, though, because somehow I knew if I started, I couldn't stop. I was that close to the edge. To the ledge, if you will. I know. I mean, believe me. I thought I'd be engaged by now, too. Edging closer. Too close. It was a joke in terrible taste, but one I couldn't seem to help from making. Oh, I'm being a nag again. That's not what I meant. <sighs> I just mean since you live so far away and I can't be with you, I wish you weren't alone right now. Oh. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and now I was laughing. Laughing instead of crying because there was no other option. My thumbnail had worked its way under the shattered glass, and now I was able to ease out one of the pieces. As I did so, it sliced the pad of my thumb, deep, smearing the watch's face with thick, red blood. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> I worked the glass deeper into my skin. <laughs> I wish I weren't alone right now too, Mom. But first, I forgot to wind the watch. And then I fucking dropped it. So I guess there's no one to blame but myself, is there? <laughs> More blood on the glass. A tense pause. Carrie, are you alright? Less motherly concern in her voice now than the tone of a person who's just heard something they shouldn't. I couldn't force the glass out any farther. 
It was stuck in the metal frame of the watch, and I was only digging it farther into my thumb, almost to the bone. I might be. I might be all right if I can get this thing open. I might be able to fix it before you're gone, too. The words poured out of me like hot sick, something I had no control in stopping. Have you ever felt that way? The utter sliding, slipping feeling of your very sanity oozing through your fingers? Carrie, I'm really worried about you. I've got to go, Mom. I can't do this with one hand. With my right hand, I hung up the phone and tossed it to the desk, then dropped back to the floor on my ass so I could crouch over the watch, a hunched Scrooge counting his coins. I pulled the sliver of glass from my thumb and let it fall to the side. Maybe if I could get in there, force the hands to move, I could get it working again. And if I did, oh boy, you bet I was going to wind it. Every hour, on the hour, just like the man said. Oh, please, I didn't want to end up on that ledge with him. Foley impasse. Shared madness. Without that man on the ledge, I could have been free of all this. I could have had my dog and my man and my life just as it was supposed to be. But now it all made sense why he was up there, why I couldn't pull him back. There's so much to live for. That's what I told him. Except in his case, there wasn't. Not anymore. I started sobbing again as I picked apart the glass shards, cutting my fingertips to ribbons as I forced my way past the watch's face to the intricate metal hands inside. My hands were throbbing, but I ignored it. The pain was dull and stored somewhere in the back of my skull, because what mattered was that I got the watch working again. My phone began ringing over and over, but I let it ring. I pressed the tip of my index fingernail to the hour hand and turned it once, clockwise, all the way around. Nothing. I did it again, my fingers leaving bloody prints all over the watch's cool metal frame and what shattered glass was left. You cannot stop the world from turning. I don't know how long I was there, only that it was dark when the police began banging on my door. I was still turning the hands, both of them now, in every direction and any combination I could think of, anything to make it start ticking again. When they kicked the door open, I was on the floor, hands dripping blood, sobbing and mumbling incoherently about how I could fix it. I knew I could. There was still time. This is mostly a blur of shouting and red and blue lights glinting through the curtains. They told me to get down on the ground and put my hands out, except I wouldn't because I was still winding the watch. Upon confirming I didn't have a weapon, they put the cuffs on me from the front and shook my hands until I dropped the watch on the ground. I'm not sure what else happened. I told you, memories are strange. The only thing I remember clearly is watching helplessly as the watch hit the ground, a mess of broken glass and blood and clockwork, and looking up at the arresting officer with tears in my eyes. It was my fault. 
He was a young cop with a clearly unnerved expression on his face. It was my purpose. I was supposed to keep them here, and I let them down. And now they're all gone. That, as you can imagine, had them looking for bodies for quite a while. But they never found anything. You know that. There was nothing to be found. It's not so bad here. Mom made sure they sent me to a nice facility. A comfortable place they like to call a treatment center, rather than an insane asylum. That means I don't get strapped down, as long as I behave. The food is pretty decent, and my psychiatrist lets me use the computer for journaling. She thought it might be a good idea to start at the beginning, tell my story, what I thought happened. Yes, you can practically see those quotes floating in the air as she said this. And maybe I'd work through it. Maybe I'd have a breakthrough. Did you see anything in here that would constitute a breakthrough? Even a breakthrough in those mocking little quotes? No? Me neither. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad Mom called the cops that night. When I wouldn't answer, she panicked, and it was a good thing she did. It took a long time for my fingers to heal. It hurt to type this at first, but as time's gone by, they ache less and less. If they hadn't stopped me, literally wrestled the watch from my hands, I think I might still be there today, uselessly winding the hands and waiting for that tick, tick, tick. I still miss Mike. I miss Penny. I've learned not to bring them up in therapy anymore since they technically don't exist. But I'll always hold them in my heart. Warm little remnants of the life I lived before the man on the ledge ruined everything. And like I said, it's not so bad here. But like any healthcare facility, it has its downfalls. Nurses who are too tired to pretend like they give a shit about you and your problems. Doctors who'd prefer to toss pills down your throat rather than figure out what the real issue is. Orderlies who steal things from your drawers when you're out of the room. I didn't know where the watch was at first. My psychiatrist had been very firm at first that I couldn't have it. The police had given it to my mother, and she assured me it was very safe in her care. So I started a little hunger strike to emphasize how much I wanted needed the watch back. Mom was still here, of course, so the fact that it broke didn't seem to affect her. Yet. And I wanted it with me, just to be sure. They brought it to me after three days without food. Someone had cleared all the glass out of the front, how thoughtful, and wiped it down until all the blood was gone, even from the face where I'd swiped circle after circle of my own red fingerprint. It was good to have it back, but the way it was silent reminded me of a stillborn baby, so I put it in the drawer of my nightstand, just as I had the first night I brought it home. But many orderlies believe mental patients are not meant to have nice things, even if it's just a dead pocket watch, and it didn't take very long for it to go missing. You might think I noticed it was gone by opening the drawer to find only my notebook and a few rogue dust bunnies, but no. It was so much better than that. 
I was coming back from lunch when I passed Carl, a big, burly guy in his 40s who reminded me more of a convict than someone suited for healthcare as he was leaving my room. He had this look on his face like he'd just done something very clever indeed. I recognized that look because it was the same way I'd felt when I wound the watch in secret. I was about to ask him if he'd been through my things when I heard it, faint but sure, and coming from his pocket. I closed my mouth abruptly. We stared each other down like bullies on the playground about to start swinging. And I smiled. I wish the man on the ledge had known what he was doing. I wish he'd found out sooner. You can't kill a curse no more than you can stop time. But you can pass it on. Hand it over like a baton in a marathon and wipe your hands clean. All gone. Carl became very quiet over the next few days. After a week, he stopped coming into work altogether. That was six months ago. It's like a weight has been lifted from my shoulders. I don't step in when no one else will. I stay out of other people's business. I'm not responsible for anyone anymore. I think I'll delete this and start over. I'll write something better, more positive. Something that will prove to my psychiatrist I've had a breakthrough. Because even with everything that's happened, I want to get out of here. I want to be normal. I want to live my life again. Because I'm a nice girl, and I've got so much left to live for. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.